turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. I have a pre-message for you this morning, uh, a pre-sermon sermon. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the election. Um, so uh, if you were a mechanic, uh, I'm not a mechanic. Uh, if I grew up having to figure out how to do the basic things of you know, check the oil and make sure there's water and radiator f- fluid and taking care of that and make sure there's gas in it because I, I don't think cars go without gas, at least not the ones that I had. Um, but what's interesting to me, I, I, I remember watching a mechanic check out my car and he pulled the dipstick out and he looked at it um, and he started talking about all that that sh- would show him. And for me, uh, it just showed me if I had oil in there, you know, and how much I had, if I was a quart low or half a quart low, or there was none in there whatsoever. Um, it showed there was a problem. But for a mechanic, they would look at uh, how much there is, the consistency of it, uh, if it's clean or if it's dirty. Uh, and that would show them much about what was going on in that engine. I know that uh, many things in our lives are, are like a dipstick into our heart spiritually. Um, and trials and events come up and they reveal what's going on inside of us. And as I uh, considered the election um, this last week and, and just how uh, we are doing as a country, uh, how we are doing as a church, uh, how I am doing individually, uh, in my relationship with the Lord, um, I really believe it was one of those dipstick moments where uh, you pull that out and you really see what's going on. Uh, as a pastor, um, I want to tell you, and I'm not really good at like talking about world events and where things are going and uh, seeing uh, in patterns for the future. That's not the way God has gifted me. Um, and yet, as I consider, uh, you know, the way the election has gone the last couple of weeks and our response to that, and my own heart in this, um, I think it reveals uh, what's going on inside of me, uh, my response to these things, and maybe with you as well. It questions for us the plan of God uh, that we believe uh, really uh, that all events of life are according to the plan of God, that somehow he calls us to act in a, a, a matter in time. And yet ultimately he is uh, working out his plan and not just his plan, but his goodness, uh, that he loves his people and that he continues to be good. Um, I think responses that I've seen this week have been more uh more identified not in the trust in the plan of God and the goodness of him, but in the selfishness and pride of men and the arrogance that comes uh, from those things. Many times when we consider voting, we don't ask the question, uh, what God would have me do, where he would have me uh, vote and how he would have me vote. But we just ask the question, What's best for me? What will be the 
bring the most benefit to me personally and my family? What's good for the people that I like? Uh, what is what I want? Um, and so the selfishness of man uh, rules the day. Involved in that is the pride of man that says, I know better than everybody else. I'm the one that uh, has all the right answers and, and can tell you what needs to happen. And everyone who doesn't agree with me is wrong, is wrong. And we belittle uh, people who don't agree with us. And then lastly, I think the, the mere arrogance that comes out of us as people. And remember that, that I'm, I'm seeing this dipstick dip into my own heart. Uh, the, the idea of arrogance of saying, I know what's best. That somehow I should be near my phone when the big events of life are happening because I know the call's going to come in because they need my advice when it comes to the great world events. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about some of these things. We'll relate to that. But I want to encourage you as a pastor uh, that we should take a step back from all these things and not just ask what is going on or what the news is saying, but how God is working in this and what he wants my response to be if I truly trust him for everything in life. Which leads me to Veterans Day. Um, I want to acknowledge on a day like today as we celebrate Veterans Day tomorrow, uh, how great it is that people have served our country. I've been willing to even go overseas uh, to fight in, in, in instances where they may not have understood everything that was going on. And yet, uh, as a desire of this country to both protect itself and make a better world, um, men and women have gone and served. And lastly, I just want to pray for our country and our president. As God has commanded us to do, uh, this is not something we do because we like someone and he's a part of our party or we voted for him. But we do this acknowledging that God is over all. Uh, and as he calls us to pray uh, for the people that we live with, as well as those rulers in authority. Let's pray right now. And God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the grace uh, that you have extended to us to live in this beautiful place, this great country, uh, in just such a time as this. God, uh, we don't always know why you've blessed us in this way or uh, how we fit into history, but we just know that this is part of what you're doing. God, we pray for our president today. We ask that you would guide his steps. I pray that he would uh, hear what you want him to hear and be willing and bold enough to follow uh, you. Um, God, I know there's many pressures in this world, uh, both uh, complex issues of country against country, wars and economics. God, I pray that you would bless our president in such a way that he would be able to hear from you. God, I also ask that in that, that you would protect your church, that you would uh, place us in the place where we could flourish in sharing the gospel. God, let us not be con concerned with the temporary things of this world, but may you cause us to be fruitful 
ultimately that souls would come to relationship with you, an eternal relationship that goes beyond uh, both this country and this, uh, the days we live in today. God, thank you uh, for all that you've blessed us with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you uh, for allowing me to be your pastor and share those words with you. I know I didn't ask you ahead of time um, because I didn't want to know what you had to say. So we're in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 1. Micah is one of the minor prophets. And uh, this is a book similar to others we've looked at where it shares what God thinks, um, what, how he speaks into the course of history. Um, many times we look at God and we say, God is silent. Uh, he stands back from history. Or he follows his people around and just kind of helps them wherever they want to go. And as we look at the book of Micah, we realize that God is very different than that. And uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us of the time and uh, through those dating markers of kings, we see that uh, he was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos. And if you consider those kings and what was going on in God's people at that time, there was a sense of economic prosperity. There was a sense of, uh, of affluence and the ability of God's people uh, to enjoy life. What happens in times like this, and I think that that can be connected with our day today, is that it, it seems like on the outside, because of the homes that we live in, the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, and the activities that we become uh, filling our days with, as we look at those things, it seems like everything's going great. And yet, as we're going to see in the book of Micah, that created an exterior picture that everything was going great. And yet, inside, there was a, a sense of internal decay spiritually in God's people. I want to remind you that God has something to say about that. That we should always be asking the question, God, God, what do you think about my life? What do you think about the things that I value, the way I spend my time, the the things that really excite me? God, I, I want you to have your way in me. I want to remind you that he's working. We looked at that last week in the book of Habakkuk, that even in desperate times, God is working out his plan. Lastly, I just want to remind you that God is not passive. God is not passive when it comes to your life. He he doesn't say, you just do whatever you want. I don't really care. Uh, He's not the permissive and passive parent that just says, I'll just check in every once in a while and try not to get in trouble. Uh, He is not passive when it comes to what we do, both as a people and as individuals. We look at chapter 1 and it describes God speaking into history and saying, this is where I'm at. This is what I think of the life that you're living. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, Hear you, peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. 
And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Then the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathers them and to the fee of the prostitute, they shall return. As you read that, you don't get a whole lot of details of what exactly uh, the Lord um, specifically was bothered by. It talks about idolatry, the high places. It talks about the cities. But it says, this is what I'm coming to do. This is what God will do in response to the life you live. As he shared this, uh, you notice a few things. The judgment is on Samaria and Jerusalem. It's the picture of the city part. It's the picture of the development of man. Um, I think there's a sense, I I know most of you Bear Valley types, you've ran away from the city. Uh, You love the idea of open places. And yet, I think all of us in some, some respect have been in a big city and been in awe of the buildings, the freeways, the people, the, the, the ability for man to create. And yet, as Micah describes God's message, he said there's judgment upon Samaria and Jerusalem. As you look down um, in verse 3, it says what God is going to do. He says that he is coming out of his place. Uh, we struggle with this picture. Um, I remember in the book of Exodus, it says that the Lord remembered. And for me, in my mind, um, struggling with, well, he remembered. Uh, does that mean he forgot? <laughs> like he had forgotten and then he remembered? And, and the same picture here is the, the idea that God is distant. He's in his place. And now he is coming out of his place and he goes, hey, what's going on here? That's not the picture of God. It's the way we see it as man. When we see wicked people or or we are wicked people and we're doing wicked things and nothing happens, sometimes we say to ourselves, well, God doesn't care. It's okay by him. You know, uh, we see that today where people say, hey, you know, um, some of you Bible thumpers, you know, you're, you're too wound up about this. If God really cared about this, he would do something about it. 
I want to tell you, God is not permissive and passive. He, he's working out his plan. He, he is fulfilling his purposes according to his own timetable. And at the proper time, when it's right for him, when it's part of his plan, he comes out of his place. And this is what it says that he is about to do. He says this in verse 3, And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Tread upon them. The picture being uh, on a hill or mountaintop, the, the development of a place to sacrifice to uh, other gods. They would place them up there to, for a special place of worship so where all could see and come to. And he says, I'll tell you what I'm about ready to do. I'm going to come stomp on them. I'm going to come and wipe them out. I'm going to come flatten these high places. God is not pleased. He's not pleased with the idolatry he sees, the, the greed that comes. He says uh, uh, in verse 4, And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Why? Well, because of sin. And at the center of it, Samaria and Jerusalem. As you go on in the book of Micah, you could see that uh, one of the things that the book of Micah is sharing is the Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are coming by God's own will. And as we've talked about this before, it's so hard because we see um, the Assyrians as godless people. And you say, well, who does God use in his plan? He uses godly people. In our minds, this is what we do. We say, godly people God uses for his purposes. And people who follow after God are good people. And good things come to good people. And bad things come to bad people. It's real simple. And then you look and you see at times and points of history that God takes his own people and he brings ungodly people to work out his plan in the life of his own people. And that's what he did with the Assyrians. So hard for us to picture. So hard for us to understand. And yet, I think that's one of the things that we can learn from the book of Micah. God saw wickedness in the days of Micah and got his people things that, that he was not pleased with in any way, shape, or form. And so he says to them, he says, look, I'm going to take your cities. I'm going to squash them. I, I love the way it says, um, I lost it. In verse 6, it says, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. You'll know what that means, right? Uh, if you've lived in Southern California or Bakersfield and uh, great agricultural places of our state, uh, what happens over time? It's real simple. Uh, the developers come. Developers are bad. They're bad people. You know why they're bad people? Because they come and they take out fruit trees and they put 
houses for people to live in. Bad, bad people. I'm just kidding. Uh, you you all live in a home that was put there, you know. If you live in Bear Valley, it was just weeds. They didn't pull out any fruit trees or anything like that. But um, you get the picture that it starts out uh, many times as just agriculture, just land that could be used for various things. And developers, as they come and they build amazing structure, they wipe that out. And then they, you, you, you have that structure there. You have the city, you have the building. And there's a sense of you come and you go, wow, this is pretty neat. God says, I'm going to remove all that. I'm going to turn it back into agricultural land. The vineyards, you know, can grow here again because I'm going to wipe out man's stuff. I'm going to take it away. This is how he dealt with and felt about God's people in the time of Micah. This was the message for them. The Lord is coming and he will tread upon this place. Remember that word tread. Uh, We'll come back to that later. If you look over, flip over a few chapters to chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, I find it interesting. In the midst of wickedness and sin and God bringing the Assyrians to come and to punish his own people and to drive them back to himself, um, you, you see this. And in the midst of that, you come to a section that talks about Jesus, the Messiah. That the Messiah will come. And I think it's such a picture of our lives here today. So we're going about our day. Um, You you look through the Old Testament, this happened over and over again. You have God's people. uh, They're called God's people. They have a relationship with God. In times of prosperity, they walk away. They walk away. They forget about God. They get all involved in sin. God draws them back. God draws them back over and over again. They, and most of the time, he draws them back through crisis, through crisis. And, and we know about crisis, right? We know about health problems and financial struggles. We know about uh, relationships that are, are bothered. We know about uncertainty in a country. And all these things come about, and they cause us to say, hey, I feel like I need something. I feel like I need something more. Well, in the midst of this, it talks about Jesus, the Messiah that is to come. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, it talks actually more about uh, Jesus, uh, even some prophecy regarding Bethlehem. But this is the section that I want to highlight who Jesus is. And it shall come about, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it shall come about, come to pass in latter days. The idea there being in the future, prophetic right here. You know, it's going to come one day. Um, that, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest, highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountains the mountain of the Lord, and the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for the strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plow- plowshares 
and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and un- under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Continuing on, in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who have been afflicted. And the lame I will make, uh, and the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. What you get here is this, a picture of the Messiah and his kingdom and how that will be different. In the midst of the chaos of this world, we get a glimpse of the Messiah who is to come. It describes in there uh, this picture of the nations being in trouble and them being drawn in. And this idea of peace, this idea of war becoming extinct, and that the this new kingdom will be different. And there, there's a sense of safety there. I want to tell you that uh, when I think about what this looks like, I, I can't picture it, right? Um, have you ever watched any... Uh, time where the United Nations gather together. Have you ever listened to any of those speeches? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? They're the United Nations. They're there to solve the world's woes and wars and bring peace and unity within the world. But it's interesting because you always see one person making a speech and then they'll pan over and look at their enemies and they're snickering or they're, they're looking at them and they're looking at them like, I hate you. And I wish that you weren't speaking right now. It's kind of like middle school a little bit. Um, but they come together and what do they accomplish? You know, for all the time and money and, 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 discussion of these amazing minds of our world today. How come there's no peace? Well, because it's impossible. Apart from the Messiah coming. Apart from Jesus being intricately involved and the one who draws them in and makes war no more. He's the one. And in the midst of the sin of the time of Micah, the picture of Jesus is brought in as the one who can accomplish, the one who can bring that which we need. I want to tell you that's true for us today as well, isn't it? In the midst of the chaotic world we both live in and add to, you know, most of us, if we'd be honest, you know, most of the problems that we're struggling with, they didn't come upon us. We went out and found them. We, we created them in our own lives. And, and you say, well, what do you do in them? Well, you need to find Jesus. You need the one that will come and to bring peace to your life. And it's Jesus. As they needed a Messiah, we too today uh, need the Messiah. 
Skip over a few more chapters to chapter 6. We'll look at verse 8. And I, I want to tell you that most of us don't know a whole lot about Micah, but we know this verse. Uh, some of you are the, the 80s and 90s. You know, you've been around. You even sang a song uh, that was based upon this one verse. Uh, I'm not going to sing it for you. It wouldn't be good edifying to your soul for me to sing solo or anything like that. But this one verse, it's interesting to me. I've always seen it as kind of one of those, uh, those instructions, those instructions that you would give to a third grader. A young child comes to you and they say, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Please tell me what to do. And in their innocence and being naive, you say, uh, you say, "I, I have something for you to do, and we see this verse as God telling them, in their innocence, uh, I, I, "This is what you should be." And it says three things. As we look at uh, chapter six, verse eight, this is what it says: "He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God." As I share with you, so if a third grader came to you and says, I, I want to know what to do, and you'd say, ha, I got the verse for you. It's to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's simple, right? But this wasn't a third grader. You look at it in context of the book of Micah, and why was God, why did God inspire this verse, these marching orders? You know why? It has everything to do with the sins that he was um, angered about. That they weren't doing justice. They, they weren't loving kindness. And they weren't walking humbly with him. You think about these three things. And <coughs> I want to talk to you about them individually. First of all, doing justice. Most of the time that I hear the word justice come up in conversation, it's people that have personally been offended or their family has been offended or people that they like have been offended and they say, I want justice. I want justice. Which means not just that they want justice, that they want to bring the justice, right? They want to be a part of bringing down uh, that which they find to be offensive. Uh, is that what this verse is talking about? Is it talking about uh, the idea of wanting personal justice? It is not. It is not. It's talking about doing justice. It, it, it's talking about us being just in our dealing with people around us. The idea of justice is the idea of fairness. And as we would deal with someone else, for us to be just to them. Or to see the weak and to make sure that they are blessed in such a way that it is just or right. Those who are weak. That's doing justly. It's the idea of of fulfilling this verse. Most of the time when we say we love justice, we're saying we're loving that the people that we don't like get it. 
They get, they get the, the justice phone that they hurt because of how evil they are. And yet that's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about us, his people, doing justice. You know what? Uh, God's followers have always been treated unjustly. Always. You start, if you want to look for it, start in Genesis and, and just look for injustice. Guess what? Happens to God's people all the time. It, it follows on through the New Testament. People are, are living their lives doing, we don't have a whole lot of data on what their life is. They come to become followers of Christ. Guess what happens immediately? Persecution. Trials. And what this verse is not telling us is let's go make all those trials go away. Let's take all that persecution out. It's not saying that. It's saying that we should not be the ones that are bringing injustice to this world. What would that look like? Well, uh, most of us love a good deal. Love a good deal. Many times we love a good deal. Uh, we're more than happy to get an unfair price. <laughs> we're more than happy to take advantage of someone because of their situation. Is that justice? <laughs> uh, sometimes we see the weak around us and we say, oh, that's just their plight. Do, do we have this heart that says, <clears throat> do we have this heart that is committed to doing justice, not just wanting it as a benefit to our life. So the first one, do justice. The second one, to love kindness, loving kindness. It's a picture of getting excited, and it really is connected to the Lord. We're going to see that in the, uh, in the next chapter. But to love kindness to, to make that the thing that we treasure. Most of us, I'll be honest, we don't treasure kindness. We treasure our personality. We cherish our history. We cherish our family name. Some of us say, you know what? I come from a long line of grouchy people. That's just the way we are. That's just the way we are. Um, you know who you are too, right? You know if I'm talking about you right now. And definitely your spouse knows uh, if I'm talking about you right now, right? I come from a long line. We, it's our personality. That's our, our DNA. That's just who we are. No, we shouldn't love that. We should set that aside and we say, we love, we love the kindness of the Lord. And we look for opportunities. Um, when you love something, maybe it's a sport. Maybe you love to uh, uh, play tennis or you love to golf or you love watching football or any of those things. You're looking for opportunities to do that. You're, you're looking for how that fits into the schedule. And even, uh, it was interesting, um, I was with some folks from our church and um, we were out and about. And in a moment they said, hey, you know what, um, there's a football game on or or happening. We could go. We could make it there. And, you know, and it was this spontaneous thing. And you know why they did that? Because they loved it. They loved it. And, and in spontaneous, when the opportunity arises, you go, man, I'm going there. That's the picture of loving kindness, uh, of looking for opportunities where this does display itself in relationship. 
You know, you're looking for, if you're to do this, in your marriage relationship, you're going to go, I'm looking for opportunities to be kind to my wife or my husband. If you have kids, you're, you're going to say to yourself, you know what? I love it when there's a great opportunity for me to be kind to my son or my daughter. When you're in uh, the workplace and you go, man, I love it when there's an opportunity for me to be kind. In the middle of this, I just want to tell you, um, this probably reminds you of something that we feel like God has called our church to. Being a gracious church, right? I know I've talked about that too much for some of you. I don't mind. I'll tell you again. Um, why do we believe God has called us to be a gracious church? It's, it, it's very similar to the reason that Micah chapter 6 verse 8 is in there. It's not because they were good at it. It's because they were bad at it. Uh, God's people were not being just. They were not being kind. They weren't loving it. They were hating. They were not um, walking humbly with God. And, and for us as well, and this is the, the deal that is so important for us to get, is that us loving kindness does not come from us. It doesn't come from us. You say, I don't know how to be kind. It's real simple. Just consider how God has been to you. And then with that as the basis, with that as uh, your message, be kind to one another. And you say, well, then it's not really me. Exactly. It's just taking what you've been giving and distributing it out again. To love kindness. To love it when there's an opportunity for you to be kind to the people around you. To be generous, to be gracious. All, all those words. The third point. It says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Humbly. Uh, so back to the time of Micah. So there was affluence. There was not a whole lot of wars going on. There was a sense where they had what they needed. And what happens? So you're tight with God. Uh, this is what happens when you come to know Christ. Most of you are humble when you come to know Christ. That you get it. You get it in your mind. You're like, uh, I need him. I need him. I've messed up my life. I see the bankruptcy that I have. So now I, I, I need him. So you cling to him. But then as time goes on, you go to a few Bible studies. You learn some things. You learn some verses. You start being able to talk with other believers. And you kind of go, I'm pretty smart. Pretty smart. Huh. You know, I've read a theology book and I can argue theology. And, you know, I, I've even noticed some people at Bear Valley Church that their theology is not exactly right. That's not the picture of humbly walking with God. The idea of humbly walking with God is as a child clinging in a healthy sense of fear to his father going, I can't get away from him. When you think you are safe, guess what you do? You let go of dad. I got it. I'm safe here. I can want I don't need dad right now. I don't need him. That's what happened in the days of Micah. Because of what they had, they, they let go. And he called them back and he says, walk with me, humbly walk with me. You know, it's interesting how we do that is this. 
that we come to know Christ and we have a relationship with the Father through the Son, so we cling to Him. And as we take steps and we, as we walk with Him, and as years go on, you say, you know what, I've walked with the Lord a long time. I've walked even the same path and some of these same trials before, and I've successfully made them. But God, I still need you today as much as I did back then. I still need you. And that's the picture of humility, still questioning, still clinging, still asking, still talking to your Father to walk with Him. And so he describes that kind of relationship and really not just the relationship, but the weakness of us as we walk away from God. What comes is we don't care about justice anymore. We don't care about kindness. And we're filled with pride. Turn over to the end of the book of Micah. And as I look, uh, what drew me to this book is this last passage. Um, we, it, the book of Micah is a book of grace, right? Uh, all kinds of sin at the beginning of the book and God's anger is clearly shown and, and talked about. And then you get to the book, the end of the book, and it uh, clarifies um, just where they're at and who God is. In verse 18, chapter 7. Who is a God like you? You know, that's the question that we should ask about every idol that we have. Is this idol going to is this idol better than God? Because if this idol is better than God, make the trade. Make the trade. You want to trade up, right? You don't want to trade down. And so if you can find something better than God, trade for it. But as Micah writes in the inspiration of God, it says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning inequity. Passing over transgression. For the remnant of his his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. But he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob. And steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You see, God gets angry about sin. It's not like you and me. We're just on an emotional roller coaster. We have a short fuse. God's thought out. He sees clearly. He understands it perfectly. And he hates it perfectly as well. He's angered by it. But who is like our God that can have a holy anger, a righteous anger, but also an amazing love? That says, I'd I, I love to forgive your transgression. I want to. I love the way it says it here. It's beautiful. At the uh, end of verse 18, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. The idea of steadfast love is his kind of love, his covenant love, his promised love that goes on forever, right? That, that's his love, and he delights in it. He loves it. Sometimes, um, 
were cheap and were uh, uptight about handing out compliments and love. We, you know, someone comes to us and they're obviously in need of grace, and we're like, "How much do you need? You sure you don't need less?" And, and we kind of say, "Well, I'm not giving you any more than this. I'm not, you know, we're cheap with it." And what is it? What does it show us here about God? Is that He loves to show His love to us. It's something that he delights in. It's a joy for him to display his love on us. What a beautiful picture for us. What a, how that separates him from everyone else. Every other idol we could chase after. That he delights in sharing his love with us, to us. <coughs> in verse 19 as he describes it mostly in terms of our transgression and really uh, our sin being so much and so vile uh, causes his love to be that much more overwhelming, right? In verse 19, he says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. What What was he treading on before? What was he treading on before? He was wiping out cities, right? He was taking out high places and uh, the places where they sacrificed. And he was wiping out and he says, I'm sick of it. I'm going to tread on this. But now he uses the same word and he says, I'm going to tread upon what? Your sins. That's good news. Your sins. uh he is willing to take the jackhammer too, right? He's going to come and crush them. Some of you are saying, well, I'm struggling. My, my sin is the most constant thing in my life. You know, there have been things that have come and gone out of my life, but it hasn't been my sin. It's like a rock. It, it reminds me of who I am. God says, I'm going to take that sin, your sin, I'm going to crush it. He doesn't just leave it with that picture, but he also adds another. In the middle of verse 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I always like watching those shows where (coughs) they're going to seek to go down to the bottom, to the deepest spots. And it's always interesting. They don't just put on a little scuba gear. They always put the big cage and it looks like you're at Disneyland on that submarine thing. You know, they have that uh, guy in there and you're, they go down and they always have to have lights. Why? Because it's so dark down there. You can't see anything. And he says, in those places where they will never find it, it'll, it'll be, it'll be out there. That's where I put this stuff. I, I just put it away. It's, it's never to be a problem again depths of the sea. I want to tell you, as we look at uh, the book of Micah, God is a God of love and grace. He hates our sin. He hates it. Uh, He's willing to uh, bring judgment and to to wipe that out. He is not passive and permissive about it. But I want you to know this too. The picture of God from the book of Micah is that he loves you so much. He loves you with his kind of love for you, which is different than ours. It has no limit. It's promised. He loves to use the word forevermore. Forevermore. This morning, um, 
I just want to remind you that God wants you to be his child in relationship like that. He, he doesn't want you to remain distant from him. He's either calling you to him or calling you back to him this morning, knowing that he is a God of compassion and love. That is all you need. Who is like our God? Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. I pray that the, uh, your message from the book of Micah will continue to resonate in our hearts. God, I pray if there's any here today um, that don't know you, that they would uh, have a clear picture of what their sin is in your eyes and then uh, understand the compassion that comes from you as you are a God who delights in showing your steadfast love. God, thank you for this morning. We, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.